Hi, this is Matt Sartwell of Kitchen Arts and Letters. We're a New York City bookstore specializing in food and drink. We're offering a one-time discount of 20% to Everything Cookbooks listeners. You can use it at our store or at kitchenartsandletters.com. It's good on everything but our out-of-print books, and it's valid until July 31st, 2023. Just use the code EverythingCookbooks at checkout. Traveling around the country or even the world writing cookbooks sounds like the dream. Today, we're talking with an author who's done this not once, but twice, all while holding down a full-time job. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for writers, readers, and cooks. This is Kristen Donnelly, and I'm here today with Molly Stevens. Hey, Molly. Hey, Kristen. So, you know Matt Rodbard, right? Yeah. I mean, I know him from, certainly from taste and from his cookbook, Koreatown, and then the food IQ he did after that. But I was on his podcast. I think you were on his podcast. I think he said Andrea's been on his podcast. I think Kate's the only one he's got to get Kate on too. But yeah, I feel like we've got this like reciprocal podcasting thing going. Yeah, he's such a big supporter of the show, which we always appreciate. And it's not a requirement for being a guest. But you know, when you have a good story to tell, and you're a fan. And he just he just loves cookbooks. And I think so much of what they do on the taste podcast is interview authors. So I know he's such a rapid fire interviewer. Yes. So yes, Matt Rodbard today is our guest. He is a writer, editor, and author of food and culture books. He has more than two decades of experience working in all kinds of media, including television, magazines, book publishing, and online. He's the co-author of Koreatown, a cookbook, which is a New York Times bestseller and co-author of Food IQ. He's also working on another book called Korea World with Dookie Hong, who is also the co-author of Koreatown. To top that all off, He's the founding editor of online food and culture magazine, Taste. It's the winner of two James Beard Awards. And there's the Taste podcast, which Molly and I just mentioned. So let's go talk to Matt. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks. Hi, guys. What's up? (laughs) It's great to have you here. Big fan of the show. I think I've listened to most episodes. A lot of colleagues of mine have appeared, and I feel honored to be one of them. Yeah, thank you for your support. Yeah, I think I'm trying to think. We don't have a lot of fellow podcasters on. <laughs> your sound is great, Matt, by the way. <laughs> I try. I bring a microphone to the table. I always do. And and you I know what? Kate, Kate is the only one who's uh, has not appeared. So let's make that happen. <laughs> I think Andrea is making her second appearance soon. So we, we're doing some doubles already. So it's great. Nice. We want to hear from you. You know, how'd you get started in food media and cookbooks? Didn't start out in food media. I started out in entertainment media. I worked at MTV. I worked in television, actually, at Court TV as well. Fox News Channel as an intern. Uh, that was a good story uh, for, for another day. Um, <laughs> I love food. I was raised by parents who took me to restaurants and in Chicago and Detroit, where they both were raised. So I really had a food in my life. But I didn't really start writing about it until around 2005. Um, before that, I was working. I was working music as well. I worked in music journalism, writing in magazines, and really, I started a Yelp account. That was my start. <laughs> really? Wow! Like a restaurant <laughs> reviewing? For sure, I absolutely did, and. 
I get asked sometimes by youngins about how do you break in? And I'm always like, yo, like start a Yelp account and start writing every day or every couple of days about your restaurant experiences. And, you know, I'd written a lot and had been published and worked as an editor. So I, I knew like how to write and report, but I had never actually done official food writing. So I did that for a while. And honestly, I think I got a job at timeout. I like got a freelance assignment from that Yelp account. Like, wow. did you use them as clips ever or, or did they come to you and they were like, we've noticed your Yelp reviews or <laughs> definitely not that I wasn't, I didn't have any clout in the Yelp reviewer power user game, <laughs> but I definitely, I think I sent a couple samples that were Yelp reviews and I'd reported before and I had clips. Sure. So that helped as well. But I remember I went to a place called the Queen's Hideaway in Greenpoint mm. uh, that was really influential in a way um, and in format. And I wrote about it for a Greenpoint city guide, you know, when Time Out used to do these big blowouts for neighborhoods. Yeah. I, I did I did this and that was my first food clip. That's so wow. cool. Wow. That's such an interesting origin story because I was reading in the intro to Koreatown, you say you were so-called, and that was your word, so-called <laughs> food writer. And I think this is 2012 and mm-hmm. someone approached you to do a guide of 75 Korean restaurants in yeah. New York City. My question before I just heard that story was like, why'd they call you? Well, there's definitely a link between my my robust Yelp presence and and writing Koreatown, my first cookbook. I think the main link was I worked for a, a long forgotten website called Metromix. We were in the same genre of Eater, Grub Street, and even The Times, and we were reporting on food openings and I was reviewing restaurants as well. So I got thrown into this mix of of the New York City food media and, and restaurant scene and was really like hacking it out, doing opening reports, doing plywood reports, essentially, and just having a lot of fun writing about chefs. And I really loved it. And I, I felt like, as opposed to like musicians who kind of have a lot of flat answers and a lot of canned answers, chefs and, and food makers were always so cool. And, and so human uh, to talk to. I remember I did a story with David Waltuck long ago, the former chef of Chanterelle, and, and just got to hear his story. And it's like, holy shit, this is actually a story that like, a thing I can do is like write about guys like, like Waltuck. That kind of started me on my journey to like writing a lot about food. And at that job at Metromix, I started writing about Korean food because my my good friend in college is Korean and he really was living with us. He was in his medical school residency and he was living with my wife and I. And we just were going out to a lot of Korean restaurants. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so I wrote a couple of these short articles for Metro Mix about Korean cuisine. And someone from the Korean government reached out to me cold and was like, hey, you seem to be interested in Korean food. Why don't you help us write this guidebook? And so that was like my journey to Koreatown. And the collaboration that you have with Dookie Hung writing that book, like how did that collaboration come about? The collaboration started, Dookie was one of the judges on that guidebook that I wrote for the Korean government. And that really had us going to like 60, 70 New York City Korean restaurants and kind of like the Michelin guide, I was like grading them. And it was really interesting to see New York City in 20, this was like 2012, 2013, and see how uh, Korean restaurants were were then and then now, which we write about in our new book, Korea World, a lot. But Duki and I became friends and we really started thinking about cookbooks. But, you know, we both were huge fans of cookbooks, but we definitely knew that we didn't want to write a traditional cookbook and that we really wanted the town of Koreatown to come out in the text and in the photography. And, you know, thankfully... Francis Lamb signed up our book and, you know, it's it was the first book he signed up as an editor at Clarkson Potter. He was a young 
editor there in, in experience, at least. Um, he'd obviously been food editorial for a long time, but was was kind of just getting getting a feel for things. And he, and he got our proposal. And I think for the sake of this podcast, I feel like we should talk about the proposal process because yeah, 100%. You know. really? it's like our next so question. This, <laughs> right. I know. The next question is, so tell us about the proposal, Matt, that whole process, because you said Dookie was a judge on this restaurant review project you did. He was just a, col- a collaborator. We had okay. several judges. He was also a chef. He, he was Got working uh, in the private sector then. He had worked at Momofuku and John George and had gone to CAA. And he was, you know, just about to open Kang Ho Dong Baekjung. So he was like in between. And so he had a little extra time. And the proposal process was cool because I had never uh, really written a proposal uh, Angela Miller is my agent, my longtime agent, and I love her. And she and I synced up like this is 2013, maybe 2012. And, you know, she gave me some examples, but I really wanted to break format. I remember I think I got a hold of the Pock Pock proposal and uh, some, you know, how that goes. Like, you know, you get proposals from agents and, you know, I think when you put a proposal out in the world, you assume it's going to be read by a lot of people. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and we really wanted it to be documentary first, um, which is the style of book that I enjoy writing myself. Dookie really was into that idea. So we were trying to really crystallize Korean food in America. This is over a decade ago. And we're thinking, how do we make something new and fresh when, you know, there's a lot of great Korean cookbooks out there. How's Dookie's point of view going to come across? I'm obviously not Korean. I'm more of the writer on the project, but I'm also kind of thinking about how do we tell stories to others? And so we did the proposal. And honestly, here's the story. A lot of people did not like it. Really? Yeah, really. It was interesting. (laughs) And we got notes back like Korean food is niche. This is like literal quotes. Korean food is only a trend. Um, wow. And granted, this uh, is 2013, uh, so and it, it's heartbreaking. It's and you know what they they're lost because you're like, or it's food for millions of people, <laughs> millions, and in a culture in Korea that was even then, and and like of course now so important on the world stage, people were not warm to it. Uh, we had a couple offers, so it wasn't like Francis was the only one, but he was so from day one, and I think it's just his real instincts and judgment. It was really cool that he right away loved it and he took the meeting with us and had a lot of notes and had a lot of comments. And it was um, an interesting time because this was like representation for Asian cookbooks was certainly not as strong as it is today at that point. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to understand that the proposal, it described this documentary approach from the from the beginning that Dookie, you and Dookie, that was your idea that you were going to document what was going on. Yeah. And we'll talk about the process of researching this book, but the Korea towns all over the country. Yeah. Um, and so you weren't saying we're going to make a Korean American cook at home, but we really want to show what's going on in Korea towns all across the country. You know, Molly, I think it was both. You know, I think with our proposal to frame it as documentary, we just actually showed a lot of documentary style reportage photography in the book as opposed to studio. Mm-hmm. And I'm really proud that both Koreatown and Korea World, the book I'm I'm putting out with Dookie next spring, has no studio in it whatsoever. We rejected the studio. And so we framed it as this documentary approach to cover all the foods in Koreatowns around the country. But we also were really focusing on home cooking as we are in Korea world and offering recipes that people really could cook at home and thinking not just about the canonical dishes like, you know, the, the chigae's and the tongs and the all the, the dishes you're going to find um, at Koreatown restaurants, barbecue, of course, but also some of the more modernist approaches and, and more current approaches. And again, this book is like 
you know, nine years old now, but people still cook from it because I feel like it has a lot of these standard dishes that we really are love and, and are, are proud of. Um, but ultimately the project was a blend of both documentary and home cooking. Mm-hmm. I actually have to ask about the photography because like, was there a lot of pushback on doing it that style and not having studio? Hmm. I'm trying to remember there was, we were like low priority for sure, which is cool. Like, you know, we were new authors and, you know, we were obviously priority, but we were not like the, I think Christy Teigen's book came out that same year. And so I think we had this benefit of, we were under the radar a little bit. Like a sleeper hit. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit sleeper. Yeah, I was happy hit, you know, New York Times bestseller and all that. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's always nice, I think, for the company to to have like one of the smaller titles break out like that. And honestly, you know, who knows if we'll ever return the list. It's very hard (laughs) these days to get back on that thing. But I think we benefited from also, I think it's mostly Francis Lamb and his ability to like sell our approach to people who didn't really know who we were and saying like, they're just going to shoot from the Korea towns. And our photographer for that project, Sam Harine came along with us to all over the country. And I think to me, this is our approach and my approach personally, um, always, uh, for cookbooks. This is the kind of style cookbook I always want to want to do, at least in my heart, I, I might one day do a full studio book. And I've done a couple studio books with taste, and worked with great photographers in studio settings. So I've, I know how that goes. I've, I'm pretty comfortable in the studio. But for me, just telling the stories of place, which I love doing in cookbooks, you have to kind of go there and shoot it. Hmm. It's interesting, too, because if looking at the photos, there are quite a few of the photos of the dishes that, I don't want to say they look like they're in a studio, but they could have been in a studio. So you, you ended up with a with a mix. And I don't know if that's because you had experience in studio, so you knew how to kind of set it up. So <laughs> just an interesting to flip through and see that. So... I mean, let's talk about that process of of researching. You think you said you spent over two years visiting like 125 markets, bars, restaurants, grocers. I mean, that's an incredible amount of time and expense too. I mean, that's, I I just, I don't know what my question is, but how'd you do that? Well, a lot lot of uh, making money count where it counts. Um, For Koreatown, at least we, we did that. I think for Korea World, we went to even more locations and we went to Korea twice. We went in 2021 and 2022 and spent over a month there in total. How do we do that? Like it's a combination of us all having jobs while writing the book. So this Mm -hmm. is not our central income, which I have to obviously really recognize that we weren't treating this project as a, as a moneymaker from at least the start. It, required us to put all of our events into the actual expenses. So that's one point. I mean, the other point is, you know, we really have a love for it. And so getting on the road and going to Duluth, Georgia back in 2014 and spending a week there um, and then going to LA many times for this book, you know, that we just finished Korea World, we spent a lot of time traveling for this book. And it's really just being crafty with the budgets and, working with partners when we could, like we were, we did a story with um, the Buddhist uh, temple organization and they helped support a, a trip to one of the temples. Cause we wrote about it. I wrote about it for taste as well. And so that's being smart with money, but also having that luxury of not it being our central income. Mm-hmm. Actually. I mean, you mentioned a restaurant book being a Korean government project. Yeah. Have you ever gotten grants or anything like that uh, for these other books? 
I've never gotten a grant from the Korean government. That book, I was a I was a paid uh, author or writer for that project, and that was like a that was a you know work for hire for, for mm-hmm. the Korean government. You know, the Korean government has been a pretty good partner in terms of in Korea helping, like my friend Nadia Cho, who who is well known within food writing and has been a really amazing partner and friend on all our Korean projects. Her book's coming out too next year, Chang's um, An Artisan. So she's writing her own book now, which I'm super excited about. But we have had help traveling. Like, I think that's one part of uh, that when we have like somebody help us get to a location and fix travel, that can be expensive and also difficult if we don't speak the language. So the travel within Korea has been helpful. Um, last year, we Duki was presenting a culinary tour of Jeju Island and Gwangju and Seoul. And so um, Alex Lau and I, um, Alex is our photographer and collaborator, kind of like linked up with them as well along the way. So we just had to be smart about um, taking advantage of locations. And for, so, so for us, it's about fixing locations. We wanted to make sure we could shoot in cool places that really presented themselves as great texture for the book and, and for me reporting in the book. So the Korean government helped us get to some of these locations over, to, over the course of the reporting. But also we hired, you know, we hired a fixer for our first trip and we, we put a lot of our advance into the actual travel around Korea. Mm-hmm. When I, when I think of you, Matt, I think one of the first words that comes to mind is just curiosity. I mean, you just have like, it's like paramount to so much of what you do. And I was getting to the question about how you, you talk about gathering the recipes for this book, because at its heart, I mean, it's a very text dense, but we're still talking about Korea town because we don't have yeah. Korea world. I know. But, we're a little but, early. Hopefully but, I can come back when that comes out. I'd love to like do another <laughs> talk with you guys. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's just so interesting, this sort of approach to cookbook making. And it, uh, what I was saying is that it's very text dense. I mean, your head notes are long. They're informative. They tell the stories behind the recipes. There are these profiles of, of various people that you meet in your travels. But so you mentioned going to Georgia, you go to obviously LA, you go to... But, how do you follow these threads, this process of gathering, and mm-hmm. you're you're looking for ideas. You're not, I mean, yes, you bring back some actual recipes that then you develop, but you're, it just seems like this process of following these threads to figure out where to go, because obviously you can't go everywhere. And you're trying yeah. to find, like you say, these places that are going to really add texture to the book. Yeah. And I'll speak about the current project too, because I think it's more relevant to this question and this topic. Because with this, this current book, Korea World, we treated our our travels as inspiration to tell this story. We have many sidebars. We're calling them citizens of Korea world and their profiles and vignettes with, with Korean Americans and Korean chefs, store owners, makers, et cetera. And so what the idea is we're, we're going to these locations and we're absorbing, we're, we're having meals, we're interviewing. And then like we're Dookie and I are always in conversation about the recipes. Um, and so we're thinking about which recipes do we want to actually execute. And so his role on the book is to develop recipes recipes and to test recipes and to figure out how do we translate like a cream corn dog, which is everywhere now. Or uh, there's a great dish called samgetang, which is a, a soup with uh, it's a young chicken stuffed with ginseng and, and rice uh, and jujubes. We saw a version of it that was actually roasted. So it was like a roasted chicken and rice in Seoul. So how do we actually do that for our reader? And the first big section of Korea world is called modern Korea. And the idea is we were in Korea, you know, since the publication of Koreatown and then subsequently together many times, like four or five times. 
And so we really were absorbing this narrative of this Korean food story, which is global now. And we were really trying to represent modern Korea through these recipes and stories. Very cool. So he does a lot of the recipe development and testing. And then is there another layer of testing that comes after that? Yeah, we had a tester work on the project exactly. Um, So Dookie would develop a recipe and we'd have it tested independently and have it really looked at. And I would I would also cook many of the recipes myself. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was important just to have my my eyes on on the dish as well um, as the writer and, and co-author. So there's many people touching it. And then with our editorial team, Susan Roxborough and Francis Lamb, really terrific recipe editors. And really like I think through the, all that process, we've come up with a, a book that I'm really proud of. And it feels like the recipes will work, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I know they do for Koreatown. I've made a few of them before. Yeah, so, we're happy yeah. with those. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. But So we often talk about making a proposal and authors will have an outline of recipes that are in the book. With this process that you and Dookie undergo, you might have broad strokes, but part of the making of the book is the inspiration of what the recipes are going to be. Yeah. So I guess there are a couple questions here, um, and I want to talk more about that the process of who does what. But I'm sorry, I don't know how many recipes are in Koreatown. A hundred. Okay. And so then how about this next one, Korea World? Is it this is about the same size? or is We it- have, uh, yeah, we have like 85 to 90 recipes, and we have some guest recipes as well. Both books have guest recipes, so we definitely have recipes coming in from other voices, especially the folks that we spoke with mm-hmm. on tour. Molly, we went into the proposal process with a kind of a loose list of some of the recipes we wanted to include. You know, some of these dishes that honestly felt modern. I mentioned the, the Samgyehan roast chicken. We did uh, a bibimbap inspired by Korean air. So if you've ever flown Korean air, they've got these little tubes of gojijan. That's actually a roasted gojijan. So we have like recreated in our brain the Korean air bibimbap, which <laughs> is kind of fun. Uh, there's a long section about coffee, which is interesting. I think you know anyone who's ever been to Seoul, like there's a ton of amazing third wave coffee happening there. And then there's like Delgona coffee. So all like these were actually part of our proposal when we wrote it. We knew that these would be some of the recipes we'd focus on. But then, of course, we found some along the way. Does that answer what you're talking about? Yeah, it it does. And I'm also, you know, when you're doing a second book, you know, you don't want to repeat the recipes that are in the first. But you're I mean, there's endless, endless inspiration, obviously. Yeah, we definitely were conscious of that. It was a question. The one one initial idea which we rejected initially or eventually was, were we going to maybe take 10 recipes from book one and like redo them? Because there are mm-hmm. some recipes we love in book one. And, you know, like this isn't like Mangji, amazing Korean-American and, and, and a cookbook author and love her. Her books are extremely thorough and like encyclopedic almost. So we knew our books were never going to be the encyclopedia of like all the Korean dishes. We wanted them to really be us. And so we were like, do we want to redo some of the dishes in a more modern way or a new way? But we figured we wanted to really focus on new recipes so our readers will pick this up and be like, okay, these are all new ideas. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, there's a ton of personality in the book too. We talk a lot about voice on on this podcast and you primarily use we 
in your yeah. head notes, as in you and Dookie. But sometimes you refer to you in third person, but there's also a ton of humor and, you know, there's sort of like the professional sports analogies and popular, you know, pop culture references. I mean, there's a lot. And that goes in through to the recipes themselves, mm-hmm. too, I feel like. You're having fun with these recipes as much as you are with the language around them. Yeah. I mean, get ready for Korea World, too. I mean, we really <laughs> let it rip it a few times. And, you know, yeah, point of view is interesting. Like I wrote a book with my buddy, Daniel Holzman called Food IQ that came out last year. And that was all in third, which I thought was fun to write, you know, everything from like this higher plane that it was almost like a documentary film being made of us arguing about food. But for Dookie and I, the collaboration, we incorporate Alex in it as well. So we'll break into third and talk about Alex or we'll talk about some of our own personal histories in third. But usually it's the we And then we try to like not use those crutches, so to speak, when we're writing. We kind of want it to be like like all the the profiles and the citizens of Korea world are all written in third as they would be like a journalistic endeavor. Mm -hmm. But tone a voice is super important. And like I feel I'm not somebody who will collaborate as a, you know, a with contributor. Like a ghostwriter or Yeah. I've tried that and I've I've had a lot of failure with that uh, or had some failure with that because I felt like I wanted it to be more of like our collaboration <laughs> versus me writing as someone. And so and this is all to say I have a tremendous respect for any um, ghostwriters or with collaborators because I think that that is a real skill that writers with voice maybe don't realize is actually much harder in some ways. They're just, I think they're just so different. I don't know if I totally realized that, Matt, that you you hadn't necessarily, but now that I think about it, yeah, all the books really have so much of you in it. Yeah. (laughs) Which is cool. Which, you know, and honestly, if if I do work with, and I have some ideas with some other folks, you know, it's not a matter of, um, I can't work with somebody with a lot of point of view, like Daniel and I have a lot of point of view. And I think like writing in third is a good compromise. So if it's like two big brains coming together, on a project, writing in third would be my compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, and just writing it in this voice that feels like our, t- our vibe. I just think when working with a, somebody, I have to like really connect with them and they have to be a friend and feel like I have a real friendship with them versus it being more of like a, a work thing. It's so interesting. And it's so, I mean, you say failure, you know, I don't mean failure, but that you use the word failure saying that you've tried to do some projects where your voice is secondary or that you're supporting this other voice or writing in this other voice. And I think that's such an important thing to realize as an author, because some people are just like really good at that. That's Mm -hmm. their skill. They bring this almost like ability to mimic somebody else's voice or to absorb, but but you bring this different energy to it. And so then it's, it's, it's just such an interesting thing to realize about yourself and about your skill as a writer and what you want to work on. And then this use of third person, sometimes that's also just less cumbersome. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, the we is gets sort of, I don't know. No, it feels really the we can be a burden. And it feels if it's like only partially dookie and it's more of my story, like our shared experience under a we is not always accurate. So it's easier to say like, Daniel thinks this, Matt thinks this, referring to Daniel Holzman mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. that book. Yeah, I agree. And like back to that um, that project, you know, it was really hard being kicked off a project. And so I feel like that happens sometimes. And 
I still like the person I worked with. I just, I was kicked off the project because I just don't think the agent of the person was, and this is real talk because of this, this may happen to listeners and that don't get discouraged. I tried right. not to, it was very heart heartbreaking at times because I really loved the person I was writing with. And, you know, it comes down to the agent sometimes being kind of having a terrible ideas and the agent sometimes will, will absolutely crush the, crush the project and actually screw over their client Good agents won't do that, but it does happen. And mm-hmm. I just say, don't get discouraged if you get booted from a project or they move on to another direction. Because there's, if you're good and you're, you know, can work hard, there's so many projects available. So, like you'll yeah. find your place essentially. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Using the um, omniscient sort of voice that you've been using, it goes with the documentary style as well. I mean, it's really, as you say, reportage. You're reporting on yourself, but you're reporting on this um, yeah, information. So Definitely. Yeah. This is not to say that we're, this is like an original thought. I think like books like Beyond the Great Wall, James Oslin's books, you know, Andy Ricker's books, Andrew Nguyen's books. I could go on going back even further with Reuschel's books, pre-Krishna's books. I, I feel like... These books have moments of documentary in them. And I think Mm -hmm. that some of them are travelogue and repertoire. Some of them are in kitchens, but they actually feel like real. And you're actually shooting on real surfaces and spaces. And all those books authors mentioned, I'm forgetting many others, came before us. I love Chot. Chot is amazing. I love Masala, that book that came out on 10 Speed, I think, or maybe Potter. There's a lot. But it's so true that in the end, a lot of books still have that studio photography element because I know a lot a lot of times publishers want like visual consistency and control. So that's what I was asking. If there was any pushback about the photography. I would say yes, definitely. And I think that we were lucky again to have Francis and Aaron, Aaron Wenner as well kind of give us that shot of, of using this documentary approach. And not get into that like rigidity about it needs to be in a studio and feel very uniform. I think what I really reject is like circle plate, circle plate, circle plate, circle plate mm-hmm. when you're pushing through a book. Mm-hmm. Or like you went out and shot for a couple of days and that's your reportage for the book. Mm-hmm. I always feel like the strongest books have a lot of time between the shoots and there's a lot of connective tissue between the head notes, the recipes and the photography. And th- that takes time. So I think some of it, like Koreatown, like we were new and, and some of the, the photos were super rookie. Like, I mean, there's literally a photo of, I mean, not Sam Harine. I mean, cause his photos are beautiful, but like I shot a few books, photos in Koreatown <laughs> and I w- wish I didn't have to do that, but that was just on me. But it, it's just the way it goes. And I, I feel like your publisher, if you have a really strong vision to shoot in situ and be on the road, it should work, hopefully. Yeah. So here's an interesting, que- or I find an interesting question yeah. about, about all those photographs and you're working with Sam and you're traveling with Sam and you're taking pictures on your phone. And it, what's the process of weaving those photos, the photos, choosing the photos and figuring out? Because I'm I'm guessing, you know, anybody goes on a trip, there's a ton more photos than you ever use, what, you know, when you're you know, putting <laughs> together your slideshow at the end. So how did that all happen, <laughs> working with the design team and getting them into layout? Well, you know, with... Uh our current project for Korea world, you know, I was talking to Francis or somebody and to use a, an internal term, like a fa- or fetch, like our, our photo drop was <laughs> going to be like over 750 photos. And he was like, people are like, that's crazy. Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, but we have a lot of photos. It really is about keying the art correctly when you're writing the book and knowing that there is a real image or two when you're writing it. So thinking about 
the images as you write. And actually in the way I organize books in Google Docs, I always have a, a line for the, the photo always like in the Google Doc, I always have the, the real photo or the photo I shot that I know we could probably go and reshoot. So I'm always thinking visually when I'm writing the manuscript and that, that to me is like my method and my process. And so it really does start with sometimes with the photos. I know Alison Roman, I was talking to her about that too. And I know she starts with photos sometimes when she's writing her books. So it doesn't have to always be like a Korea world type of book um, about culture. It could be a home cooking book, but I know I'm sure folks listening to this have done the same thing, but it's always having those visuals there. Because for me, I can't really write in a vacuum without visual representation. And so when we go to Key the Art, which we're going to do soon for Korea World, I have like a really clear vision of how these photos are going to link with the recipes. You've gone out on your trip. You've come back. Dookie's developed the recipe. It's you're writing it up and you're remembering being there. Yeah. And you're remembering what it looked like and what the dish looked like. And you're keying in some photos you knew would have been taken of that situation. Definitely. And like for us, the, we, sh we write this in a very clear note in our introduction in, in It's Also in Koreatown is that, you know, our photos uh, aren't always the exact to a letter representation of the dish. I think of them sometimes as a mood board. And I think we have many photos in the book that are like to like look very clearly the dish. Um, so I'm not saying that we always do that, but I think in some cases we wanted the the stronger image to, you know, rise above the literal image. So this is like process shots. This is like shots of markets or shots of people that represent this dish. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely a choice and it's not for everyone. And I think some readers do get frustrated when there aren't a lot of like finished dishes. So I'm not trying to say this is like the only way to do it. But for us, when we're trying to tell a story and have a real like narrative behind it, um, versus cooking instruction. I think it's really important to like make sure the photos are interesting and tell a story and that you definitely lose some of that like textbook, like this is exactly how it looks. But for me, home cooking isn't always about exactly how it looks. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I was I was just thinking I was making the, I think it was a kimchi fried rice the other day. And nice. Yeah, it's great. And um, and the recipes really do Go work. Gojujang and, butter. And yeah, yeah. And then, but it says two fried eggs. I think yeah. they're fried. And, and the picture, there are no fried eggs. And, uh, yeah. you know, in sort of standard cookbook, you, you know, I could see myself Someone would be would flipping flag out. It. Yeah. Yeah. Get flagged. And, and you also make it, I'm assuming, very conscious decision not to caption the photos either. Because, yeah, I know looking at it that that's the kimchi fried rice. But the fact that there are no eggs on it. Uh, you know, I can figure that out. I think so. <laughs> I think Molly, I think yeah. I, I like to assume most of our readers can figure it out too. And we did have an instance, we, we actually have a, a spaghetti vongole recipe um, because vongole is actually very Korean. If you think about it, uh, it's like clams and garlic and oil and pasta, you know, of course it has wheat pasta, but vongole we were seeing all over Seoul. And so we have like, we wanted to do a vongole recipe, but then like the garnish wasn't quite right in our head note or a recipe. So we, we, we tweaked it a bit and that was like an edit process, but there are instances where we, we definitely will write to the photo. So we will definitely develop to the photo that that has happened. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to the books that you've co-authored, you've done manuscript development for some books for taste like uh, lasagna and one about yeah. sheep pan suppers. Yeah, sheep pan chicken. Yeah, those are very different types of books. Loved doing those books. Absolutely. Yeah. Worked with Kathy Airway on, and sheep pan chicken and kind of did a development edit with her on that one. And then with Anna Hiesel, my old colleague with lasagna, she wrote it, but we collaborated on the manuscript. So 
and worked with like Raquel Pelzel as well at Potter on that one. So we had some help from the publishing side, but it really, I took first pass on a lot of it and just made sure, you know, as like many listening show, uh, when you're writing a book, it's also project management, right? And you're like, it's making sure um, all the pieces are in the right place and, and you have like deadlines, you know, that's kind of part of the process. Mm-hmm. But um, those are, you know, we shot those in studio too. So like, again, I was saying I was, I'm not a studio person per se. I've done studio books and those are two great examples. Are those books that like come up in house? Like what's the genesis of those kinds of books? Yeah. So Taste is part of Crown, formerly Random House. Now it's Crown. We're back to where we started. And I love my job. I feel really fortunate. I, I really, I love the, the books. You know, I, I publish with Potter and so we taste is an interesting publication that we market the books and we we collaborate with authors and and part of our our goal is to also bring new ideas to the books program to bring bring new talent to the books program folks who appear on the taste podcast or in our pages have have landed book deals so so I get to work with so many incredible authors and so with the books program at Taste, which we have done two books and we're thinking about a couple other ideas for the future. Yeah, we like identified a couple trends that we saw and uh, we really just want to obviously create books that sell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really it is a sales proposition for us. There's a lot of ways that you can sell a book and using our platform is one way, but also figuring out a topic that hits the zeitgeist is another one. So like- yeah. We're on the hunt for our next couple books, for sure. And in those cases, just these like widely appealing things like lasagna. <laughs> lasagna, yeah. I mean, Anna took the lead on that one and really yeah. wanted to write it. And, and it was a great idea. You know, she has her great tinned fish cookbook out now. And, and she's oh, really nice. become quite a uh, quite a savvy book writer uh, for these single topics. So, yeah. Well, it's just interesting because we've sort of moved from your book, your cookbooks, you know, the, the work you've done. Certainly Koreatown, Korea World, and then the Food IQ that we could just that you did with Dan Holtzman in between the two books, which is so different than these, but similarly a documentary type approach. It's sort of an investigation of cooks' questions in the kitchen. But then your work at Taste is very different than the Matt Rodbard voice with a capital V (laughs) sort of thing, right? And so let's talk a little bit about Taste. And it's an online magazine or it's digital brand. What is Taste? Great question. I love the question. We've been publishing for seven years now. So we've been in the game for a while. I like to think of Taste as an online magazine um, with a lot of different levers we pull or, or ways that you can be part of our community. And we have wonderful readers who've been with us opening our emails for seven years. We have a large email uh, readership, over 200,000 readers that we send out to once or twice a week. The podcast is also a big part of it. So I host a podcast with my colleague, Eliza Barbanal, and we host these interviews and you both have appeared on the show and you know how it goes. Like we like to talk to cookbook authors and food writers, but also, you know, folks in the game and in, in food and media so it all comes together as taste and we are published out of Penguin Random House. The beauty of it is that we are not a marketing tool per se or, or a marketing platform, though we market our books. Like, as I said, like we want to write about all the authors at 10 Speed Press and Clarkson Potter um, at Crown at Currency, the four publishers that we work with the imprints. 
And that's a lot. There's a lot of authors there. There's a lot of books every year. So there's, it gives us a lot to work with. But as I said, we were working also to bring new ideas to the publishers as well. So that's taste that I like to think of as like, as like the, that's like more of the boardroom, whatever, like behind the scenes, but really for our readers, it's like a cool food magazine that people can read for culture stories and for recipe stories. We really focus on the culture of food and, and have had many uh, wonderful contributors over the years write for us. Um, and also we try not to be assholes when we're editing. <laughs> I love it. It's also cool because it's, you know, I feel like so many um, online food publications, SEO is at the forefront, yeah. clearly, and taste does not, I mean, perhaps it's a consideration, but uh, it doesn't seem like a, a top consideration at all. It's more, yeah, everything has a point of view. You think so? Yeah. SEO is a really interesting thing. I don't know. If there's anyone getting into the SEO game right now in food, I think it's like the established places are the ones winning. Say more about that. So SEO, I think what, uh, Kristen, what you're saying, and I agree with you, like there's brands that really want search traffic and are selling their ads against search and traffic mm -hmm. and, and scale is really the word and, and millions of visitors each month and selling against those. And that's a, definitely one way to make a nickel in food media. I think for us, we certainly have uh, monetization goals. We make money through advertising in our newsletters. We uh, do partner campaigns uh, for our podcast and on site. So we actually do have, we have business goals. We're not just doing the marketing for the publisher. What we've been able to do is really be premium and quote unquote premium or just be like a low frequency, high quality publication. It takes a lot of work to, to put out even one article a week and we do multiple articles a week plus our podcast and newsletter. So we really are balancing staying interesting and staying in the game with high quality uh, storytelling. I feel like a douche mm -hmm. saying that, to be honest. I don't, I hate, we are storytellers at taste. Sorry. <laughs> no, but I, I think more and more as, you, as people talk about making the move to Substack, you're hearing, you know, yeah. and, and things like this, more and more people are moving away from SEO being, you know, the, the leader or the, the yeah. generator of their ideas. And they're trying to do things that are really, like you said, have, have opinions and point of view and, personal voice and all of that. Yeah. It's, it's good. <laughs> I think it's good. I think having 1000 followers versus 1 million followers is ultimately the the future of media and having 1000 people really care deeply about your brand and willing to pay you money each month or at least click on your emails. And those are obviously very round abstract numbers, but you could say like 10,000 versus 10 million a year or whatever. But I think we fall into this place and it's been a real strategy of mine running taste is to always make sure we're doing everything to the level that we, we want it to be. We want to re really consider who's writing for us. Diversity of voices has always been our number one mission from day one when we launched in 2017, because that's just, to me, frankly, more interesting to read mm -hmm. from diverse points of view. And so for us, that has been a mission always to make sure we're not just telling the same story with the same writers, uh, a little bit outside of the norm, perhaps, but also the trick is, is to make sure it's something that people actually care about. And it's not self-indulgent. You know, you could you yeah. could definitely get into that game. Like we used to publish a little more personal memoir, personal history, but to us, third person reported culture features with a very large, wide like thesis, you know, the 30,000 foot view, so to speak. That to me has always been more interesting for a wider audience. So that's kind of the way we look at our, our stories, our feature list every month. 
That's cool. And we often tell our listeners, you know, if they're thinking about a book idea, sometimes they might try and pitch a subset of that idea of their bigger book idea to a magazine or publication. And so what do you recommend people do if they want to pitch taste? We love to hear from from all sorts of writers. You know, we used to take more stories. We have a smaller staff now, so we take less stories now. So I would say it's like less frequent that we take uh, freelance pitches. We also have some pretty uh, regular columnists that we use. So we take between two and three freelance stories a month now. And then we have a couple ongoing features like our Monday interview, which are oftentimes written by freelancers. Um, and sometimes our Wednesday quick home cooking newsletter sends are written by freelancers. But those big meaty features are between two and three a month from freelancers. We have a really clear pitching guideline on our website and the about section. So check that out. And I think for us, the goal is always or the, the what we seek is a very concise pitch and something that has in the first two or three lines, the real nut graph or thesis is clear. Yeah, we'll put a link to that, um, those guidelines, because one, it's it's useful, helpful to anybody who's interested in pitching. But I also think it's just a really good example of knowing who you're pitching. And any it's something that we were actually talking about this earlier today, that if you pitch without knowing what that publication does, just don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> just don't. It's, it's, yeah. It, and it's, it's hard because, you know, I respect when it's handcrafted and it's mm-hmm. like a really well-written pitch, but it's just not right for us. And, and we have to write back a short rejection, which, you know, obviously I've, as a freelancer myself, I've been rejected so many times and I, I feel for it, but it's just so much better than just that, that boilerplate pitch. And I really respect the writers out there pitching all the time. I mean, it's really hard to yeah. especially get first clips from from new writers who may be listening to this. Yelp. I yeah, love that yeah, Yelp. Like, get that Yelp. <laughs> I mean, like, it, it, I joke, but like even Substack right now, like, you know, doing totally. some free writing on Substack and, and you know, frequency, it's a muscle for me and, and, and writing is all about frequency. That's what book writing is about. As we all know, it's all about just getting it done and, and like actually repetitive writing. Just you have to put words to the page. Yeah, that yep. brings us to, I think, our last question here, which is you have so much going on with your full time job, researching and writing these books, the podcast. You're pretty active on social media as well. So how do you manage it all? <laughs> What's your secret? A secret. Uh, I have a really amazing wife, Tamar, who who's not in food media. So there's having some balance is great. And actually being able to to leave the food media fray a little bit is a real luxury and having that support. So that's that's real talk. But honestly, as well, for me, it's just finding topics that I have an endless curiosity or interest in. And to me, food and what we do and what we care deeply about and the folks listening to this care deeply about to me is like the greatest pleasure and privilege to write about. And I, when I have to do right on a Sunday as I did yesterday, like write edits or whatever, it just is like, this is better than most jobs. That's the way I look at it. (laughs) We have it really good here. And I really appreciate people supporting cookbooks. And I didn't mean to go into this like higher tangent a little bit, but I, I think working in cookbooks, uh, working at a publisher and just what you do on your podcast, bringing a lot of life to the cookbook publishing industry is super cool. And I just respect anyone who who's in the industry, but also anyone buying cookbooks out there and supporting. I could go on a long time about why cookbooks have a bright future because they're so <laughs> it's such a bright future over other types of media. 
Yeah. But we can maybe do that another time. Yeah. No, I and I just want to say something too, just listening to you, Matt, which has been so great to hear about your books and how you know how you started, but you're so passionate about like Koreatown and Korea World being these documentary and not having studio. But you're also you love all these other books too. So you just truly, you know, I said curiosity before, but you just truly love cookbooks and you truly love food media. And, you know, you do it one way, but you also appreciate and admire the other ways it's done and your ability to work on so many different ways. I still don't know how you do it all besides Google Docs, but this is something as a freelancer, we talk about that you, you don't just do one thing. You have all these different areas and levels that you're working. So you might be doing developmental edits on a book, you're doing conceptualization here, you're doing um, articles here. So it, I think all those different things somehow keep all these various parts of your brain going, or I don't know. It's a lot. Thanks, Molly, for that, by the way. I appreciate you pointing that out. And I I think it is absolutely about having many different tracks and, and keeping your keeping your brain kind of moving. I also try to read. I know it's really hard. Like it's, I find it really hard to read fiction, but I know Molly, you're a big fiction fan. And, um, I feel like that helps the creative process. If you can just dive into some fiction and just like unplug, it's so easier said than done though. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even a couple pages, even a couple paragraphs helps. Even sometimes. a couple. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Matt. We really, really appreciate your time. We definitely hope to have you back when the next book comes out. Kristen and Molly, a real pleasure. I love what you do in your show and just such a fan. Thank you for listening to Everything Cookbooks. For more episodes and ways to contact us, go to our website, everythingcookbooks.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Any book mentioned in the show can be found on our affiliate page at bookshop.org. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Abby Circatella. Until next time, keep on writing, reading, and cooking. Bye.